Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is the 5th of December of 2021, and I'm going to be discussing obesity and critical illness and also touching up on COVID-19 and the different studies that have been published recently that look at how COVID-19 adversely affects even more so those folks who are defined as obese. Now, this is a very difficult subject to discuss because we all have people who we love who suffer from issues that have led to them having a higher weight than what they should and in turn carry the diagnosis of obesity. This podcast is really not intended to shame anyone, but rather to help educate those of us who take care of these folks um, about the things that we could expect when managing them. And overall, there's definitely a link between obesity and, and poor outcomes with COVID. As healthcare professionals, we go ahead and care for these folks and have to have a great understanding of how obesity changes the physiology and management of patients when they are critically ill. I must say that I am not here to suggest policies or solutions to the obesity issues throughout the world, as that's honestly beyond the scope of my podcast and, to be honest, my knowledge. I'm not a public policy type of guy. There's people are way better than me at that because we've seen too many people during this pandemic over the last two years lose their lives as their obesity altered their immune response along with a litany of other physiologic components that made them more likely to meet their demise from COVID. Add to the complications of hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, everything that comes along with that. I just have to say one last time, I do not want to misguide this as a hit piece on you know people who don't have the means to be healthier and have other issues which are prohibitive to weight loss. I sympathize for those individuals. Us as a society, we could ultimately do a thing or two to help out these individuals. But again, I will not pretend to have all the answers. Let's start off on seeing how obesity changes the physiology and our management of patients who are critically ill but do not have COVID. To start off this quick segment on taking care of patients who are obese with critical illness, I have to definitely tip my hat to Anderson and her colleague, whose last name, unfortunately, I cannot pronounce, or I do not want to humiliate myself on this podcast by saying it incorrectly. On this paper that's titled Impact of Obesity in Critical Illness, which was published in the December issue of CHEST, in the show notes, you could actually download this this article as it's open access and you can download it for free because it has a very nice image um, of the different manifestations from a pathophysiological perspective that we could see in patients who are obese who we take care of in the ICU. I also posted this on my Instagram account and uh, there was a lot of traction on that. So definitely want to go ahead and push you over to their to their paper and give them credit because they inspired me with the way that they wrote this article on creating this podcast. So the the main thing when we're in the ICU, at least for from the perspective of, of intensivists, we have to face the decision of intubating some of these people who are obese and um, you know, even more so in the current pandemic. And one of the things that those of us who've been at the bedside have easily observed, I mean, we've all, we've all been through this together, is that the moment you take these patients off of their respiratory support device, whether it be high flow or non-invasive ventilation, also called BiPAP, and lay them down to intubate them. Actually, I keep the devices on them until the RSI drugs kick in. But nonetheless, once you get the tube in, they really, really tank their SATs. Even if you do the intubations in a more traditional way where you do mask ventilation, 
there is an association between obesity and challenges by doing this. I mean, it's it's just a little bit more challenging. Um, and that's something that we have to keep in mind. It's, it's more difficult to go ahead and um, pre-actionate these, these folks. But one of the things I do in my practice, and it's actually supported here with operating room uh, data, is a reverse trend Dellenberg or 25% head up, 25 degrees, excuse me, head up positioning for pre-oxygenation and I actually intubate these folks sitting up in my practice. Now, I don't know if I've read any particular study to support this, but just letting you know that's what I do in my practice. These people, I intubate them sitting up. I'm a pretty nimble dude, so I get up, up I get up on the back of the bed to go ahead and intubate them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One of the other things that was mentioned by the authors of this article is that patients who have obesity and are in the ICU have an elevated risk of ARDS. Now, one of the things that I do want to mention, and it's very important, and I sometimes see this uh, less so now than earlier in my career, but you have to remember to set these folks up to a tidal volume of 60 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight. Um, not the actual body weight. Just because a person has an elevated BMI does not mean that their lungs are any bigger. And although we try to keep their plateau pressures at less than uh, less than or equal to 30 centimeters of water, it's we sometimes you just can't ventilate these people with with that type of uh, with those types of plateau pressures. So we have to keep in mind that we have to make adjustments to the way we think to be able to oxygenate and ventilate these patients better. The other thing that we have to consider is the fact that the peep that we might be transmitting through the ventilator might not actually be the peep that the patient is getting. And this is where some data some data has been published before about using esophageal pressures, esophageal manometry to actually obtain the pressures. But the reality is that most of us do not have those, um, we don't have those techniques in our respective ICUs to be able to titrate peep in that fashion. So we honestly just go ahead and do our best in patients who have ARDS. Now, this also leads to issues with uh, sedation medications as well as paralytics for, for these folks, but that's kind of a different topic altogether. One of the things we often do in patients who have ARDS is that we prone them. But here's here's the problem. I mean, and this is this is just a reality that those of us who are at the bedside know it's like we we know that when it comes to proning a patient, in other words, flipping them on their bellies to help oxygenation and ventilation, as supported by the Proceva trial, when it comes to the actual mechanics of doing this, it requires a number of individuals who, uh, who basically have to use a lot of strength to be able to turn a person who is of heavier weights than normal. To, to turn them and put them on their belly. But this also makes it challenging from a from a perspective that if something were to go wrong in order to flip them back, I mean, the chances that tubes and lines could be dislodged are, are a very significant factor here. One of the other things discussed in the trial, and this trial, excuse me, in this paper, was how obesity should not, I'm going to quote them, obesity should not be considered an absolute contraindication to VV ECMO. 
But one of the things I have to say about that is that if you have the access to VV ECMO in shop in your in your institution, then okay, that's that's one thing because you can leave them on the ventilator. But if you have to transfer the patient to another institution, it makes it very challenging when, first of all, a patient has to be sick enough to be considered for VV ECMO, but to to move them from a regular ventilator to a transport ventilator. If a patient's, for example, on 20 of PEEP, the transport ventilator's most likely not going to be sufficiently powerful to develop, not to develop, but rather to deliver that same amount of PEEP to a patient. And the chances are that once you switch them over from one circuit to the other, things could go really bad really fast. Then you also have to consider the, the logistics concerns of people with an elevated BMI of uh, having a weight capacity on the, on the different helicopters. That's, that's just something we have to consider as well as ambulances and, you know, having room around the ambulance to walk around maneuver and things of that nature. But again, I'm not an EMS guy, so there are probably people who could go ahead and um, correct me on that. Amongst the bullet points in the image that's used in the cited paper, you know, there's a decreased respiratory compliance in this in these patients with obesity as well as a decrease in uh, residual capacity. There's increased derecruitment. There's more VQ mismatch. These patients have an increased work of breathing as well as more intrinsic PEEP. So these are all things that we need to consider for these patients when we try to manage them. But in addition, there are also cardiovascular complications because these folks have an increased blood volume and therefore their stroke volume, cardiac output, uh, left ventricular and left atrial filling pressures, they're, they're all not normal. I mean, this makes these patients more likely to have a risk of atrial fibrillation and things of that nature. When it comes to providing these patients with IV fluids, it becomes a little bit tricky simply because of this increased blood volume where we we don't know what's the ideal fluid regimen when we provide these people as uh, 500 cc bolus for somebody who has a BMI of 18 is not necessarily the same as a person who receives a 500 cc bolus of fluids to try to change stroke volume in a BMI that's larger than 30, which is the definition of obesity. So that's also something that we need to keep in mind here. From a renal standpoint, the data that is provided by this article shows that these patients have a supernormal GFR, but something that many of them don't know they have because a lot of times access to a primary care doctor or whatever reason that they don't go get checked out, which is beyond the scope here, many of these patients have chronic kidney disease that they're unfamiliar with. They've, they've never gone and obtained baseline uh, baseline um, BUN and creatinine levels for themselves. So the data has suggested that obesity is a risk factor for CKD and acute kidney injury. Now, there are different mechanisms which one could describe, uh, for example, intra-abdominal hypertension, um, changes in the patient's circulating inflammatory mediators, and things of that nature that can make these patients have a higher chance of developing acute kidney injury once they're hospitalized in, in the ICU. One of the conversations that I often get into with the pharmacy team that I have the pleasure of working with every day when I'm treating all my critically ill patients for that matter is how are the mechanics of the medications that we're providing to this patient in a patient who has a BMI that's as elevated as it is. Let's be honest that when they go ahead and they calculate the dosing guidelines and also do the clinical trials on these patients, they do not necessarily always include patients who have extremely elevated BMIs. It's just not it's just not something that is done. So 
how they work and how long they last in a patient and all that is is definitely a variable that we don't know the answer to and you know sometimes when somebody's been on for example a versed drip because we'd prefer to use propofol on them but say their triglycerides are through the roof we need to switch to a versed drip we need to recall that versed deposits in the adipose tissue and if a patient has a significant amount of adipose tissue then it's just going to linger on a bit longer sometimes patients are like hey when is this person going to wake up and all we got to do is just all we do is basically shrug our shoulders and say we need to give them more time but then there are also other complications that we could see in patients who are obese i mean and the things described by this paper and again i recommend that you read it for yourself and don't trust me, is how patients who are obese have increased risk of developing venous thromboembolism, DVTs, PEs, and things of that nature. Now, part of the thing is that when we give, for example, anoxaparin, also called Lovenox, to these patients, we don't, we don't really have a good prediction of what, how long it's actually going to hang around. And so we check 10A levels on these patients, which is an extra step. Then, of course, patients could develop pressure ulcers because it's hard to mobilize them. I mean, they, they have greater sweat production. This is not me being, um, me being ugly, but it is something that's described in the literature. Then patients who need bariatric beds, there are only so many of those uh, around the hospital, and they're harder to push through. For example, let's say they have an ICU that was built decades ago. The doors don't necessarily fit. The beds don't necessarily fit through the doors in an easier fashion. Uh, patients who are in the ICU who are obese have an increased risk for bloodstream infections, pneumonias, and things of that nature, which is described in the paper. If you try to use a blood pressure cuff on these patients, you need to use a large one. And even so, you might get uh, inaccurate blood pressure meetings, readings. Excuse me, And we, we react really quick to, to abnormal blood pressure, whether it be too high, too low. So patients might get in a, in inappropriate care for, for that reason. Even placing things as simple as IVs in this patient are challenging. It's hard for the nurses to find veins in these, in these individuals, unfortunately. It's just the name of the game. So even placing central lines in these could be challenging. I, I recall a number of cases where uh, I'm not going to describe it here, but it was very, very challenging to obtain even central access on these patients uh, because of their because of their ha body habitus. Even if, let's say, for example, you need to get a CT scan on these patients, there are weight limits on many of the machines. Also, logistics of moving a patient from a bariatric bed to the CT table is is just challenging when they're sedated and intubated. So. Just, just a bunch of logistics things, logistics things that we need to consider when we take care of patients who are obese. So again, I don't don't want to make this sound ugly, but th these are just these are just the things that we deal with. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I was going to dive into the data of COVID with obesity, but I guess you could figure already that it's, it's bad. It leads to worse outcomes. More important than that, I think that we should discuss the table one that's on this paper that, again, I recommend you download in the show notes and read for yourself, which provides considerations for different management strategies of patients with obesity. 
And one of them I descri described already, which was during intubation, is to put the patient either reverse Dunnenberg or elevate the head of the bed. And I'm a huge fan of this. Then to go ahead and pre-oxygenate with non-invasive ventilation or use apneic oxygenation with high flow nasal cannula. Then do recruitment maneuvers after you intubate the patient. If your patient has ARDS, obviously you use predicted body weight to calculate the tidal volume and one should consider a high PEEP strategy. They recommend to prone positions uh, to prone your patients when indicated, but this comes with technical challenges, of course, and mechanical challenges for that matter, and that we should review the doses of sedatives with the pharmacist. Now, if you, your patient has refractory hypoxemia, we should put the patients on VV ECMO if that's available to us, and we have to monitor for uh, clots and infections in these patients. You know, if, if the patient is going to be extubated, we should review for underlying cardiac cases, uh, cardiac diseases, excuse me. And one of the things that I do a lot in my practice is I extubate these patients to either non-invasive ventilation or high flow if they're high risk. If you find that the patient is hypotensive, you make, you make sure that their blood pressure cuff is okay. And you want to make sure that their LV and RV work well and that they might need a little bit of fluids. Now, if you want to fight off pressure ulcers, bariatric beds help and nutrition evaluation is also important. One of the things that is important here is that you do not skimp on the internal nutrition you provide for patients who are obese. Um, just because they're sick doesn't mean they need to go on a diet at that particular moment. That's just cruel and not, not, not indicated for our patients. Now, we have to try to minimize our hospital-acquired infections. This is where you get rid of the Foley's and lines as much as you can, but the truth is that some of these patients, the only way you get IV access on them is through central access, pick lines, mid lines, things of that nature, which, you know, we could get dinged on for getting a secondary infection. So I guess that's enough for this particular podcast, just to illustrate the difficulties and challenges that we face when taking care of critically ill patients who are obese. Um, again, I don't know how to take care of this from a society standpoint, but my job as an intensive care doctor is to optimize the way I take care of these patients from a clinical bedside standpoint. Hope you all have a great day and a very, very happy holidays to everybody. Much love to everybody. Bye.